Take your Bibles, if you can, find your place in the book of James, James chapter 1, and today we're looking at verses 12 through 18, the title of the message, A New Challenge. And this is the fourth message in our series of following the theme of new life. Christ came to give us life, to give it abundantly. And so we are grateful that in him we have spiritual life. We've been looking at how one accepts Christ and all that he experiences or she experiences after that initial experience. It begins with a new birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. As you had a physical birth, you must also have a spiritual birth from above. And so this new life begins with a new birth experience, which means that you repent of your sins, you turn to Jesus, you uh, place your faith in him, you accept him, inviting him into your heart to be your Lord and your Savior, and he forgives you of your sin. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You become a new creature, a whole, whole new creation in Christ. So it begins with a new birth, and then, of course, you have a new confidence. You know, it's good to, to be saved. It's even better to know that you're saved. It's even still better than that to know that you can never lose your salvation. So we looked at the confidence that we have in knowing that once we have accepted Christ and are born again and are saved, then we can never, ever lose our salvation. Last week, we looked at a new communication which has to do with prayer. Once you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, a whole new avenue of communication opens up between you and the Lord. And you can go to the Lord in prayer in the name of Jesus, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you have a new communication with the Father where you can have full confidence, unreserved, without hesitation, pouring out your heart to the Lord with whatever concerns you, concerns Him. You can confide in the Lord. You don't have to be afraid that uh, He is going to betray your confidence. Uh, what you share with Him is strictly between you and Him. He loves you. He cares about you. There's no concern too small nor too great that you can't share it with the Father. And so as a, a new person in Christ, you have an open communication by the means of prayer to have fellowship with the Father. Today we're going to be looking at a new challenge, a new challenge in the form of temptation. Every Christian is faced with temptation. There are no exceptions to this. James talks about this in his epistle, beginning in chapter 1 of James and verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The implication being that he does not tempt anyone to commit evil. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought forth by the word of truth, brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. Now, those of you who know history and have lived perhaps even during that period of time, remember December the 7th, 1941, on that Sunday, 
our nation was attacked by the empire of Japan and World War II was begun. The next day on December the 8th, 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, our president, addressed to Congress requesting a declaration of war against the empire of Japan. He said, and I quote, I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December the 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese empire. End of quote. Thus began a four-year struggle and conflict and war and bloodshed till we finally conquered the enemies that were against us. Allow me to take you back to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles there, you might open them please to Genesis chapter three, the very first book of the Bible. For in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, we find a declaration of God declaring a state of a war existing between himself and the devil, between good and evil, between light and darkness, between the seed of the woman who is a reference to Christ and the seed of the devil, who is a reference to, of course, the demonic forces of Satan. So in Genesis chapter three and verse 15, you have the statement that our father made. He is addressing the enemy who is Satan, and he is saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Remember when we looked at that passage about in our, when we observed the Lord's Supper talking about her seed, a woman does not have seed. The woman has the, the, the egg, the man has the seed, and yet she is talking here, he is talking here about the, the birth of Jesus. This is the first announcement of the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman could be explained in the second chapter of Luke uh, when the angel Gabriel explained to Mary how she would conceive and bear a son when he said that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit would overshadow her, come upon her, and uh, would enable her to conceive and give birth to, uh, to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is referred to as the seed of the woman, a miracle that happened. And so the Lord God, Father, pronounced a state of enmity, of war between the devil and Satan, or, or Christ. And then he says also, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Uh, the Lord, of course, Satan bruised him on the hill in that, uh, yes, he was crucified, but he was raised from the dead and is alive today. So in essence, compared to what's going to happen to the devil, he only received a minor wound. He was struck on the hill, but Christ will bruise and has bruised the head of the serpent. How do you kill a snake? You cut his head off up under his ear, right? They just whack it off, that's how you do it. All snakes are evil, all snakes are poisonous. There are no none, even rubber snakes are poisonous. So you cut them head off right up underneath their, their ears, little ears right there. Seriously though, when Christ died on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, and the ultimate victory will come uh, when the Lord returns. So this is the announcement that the Lord makes in Genesis 3.15. The scriptures in the King James as well as in the New American Standard that I read from uses the word enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman. The word enmity can also be translated enemy. The uh, Holman Christian Study Bible uses the word hostility. 
The Moffat translation refers to a feud that exists between the Lord and between Satan. And so war has been declared and the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation warns us of our adversary, our enemy, who is Satan, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is our enemy. He hates us. He wants to destroy us and to kill us and to cause us to have to spend eternities forever separated from the Lord. One example of this is in a parable that our Lord told recorded by Matthew in the 13th chapter of his gospel, where he talked about the sower who went forth to sow the seed. Some fell on the hard surface, some on shallow, some among thorns, but some among the good soil. In explaining the parable, the disciples came to him and Jesus told another parable on the hills of that one. He said that there was a sower who went forth to sow the seed and during the night, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. They didn't know it until the two started growing up together. Those who were responsible for the field, taking care of it and the future harvest, came to the master and said, the tares are growing up with the wheat. Would you like for us to try to separate the tares from the wheat? And the master said, no. If you do it now, you're gonna run the risk of, of destroying both the wheat and the tares. Let them both grow together. And then at the harvest time, the harvesters will separate the tares from the wheat, throw the tares into the fire to be consumed, and of course the wheat to be gathered and placed in the barn. And in explaining that, our Lord said, an enemy has done this. That is, an enemy has sown the tares among the wheat. The enemy clearly identified as Satan. So the devil is our enemy and we are in a state of war. Dean Sherman in his book, Spiritual Warfare for Every Christian has said, when we signed up to be Christians, we automatically entered into warfare. It's not a matter of preference. Spiritual warfare begins with recognizing that we are already in the midst of it. So we don't have to declare war against the devil. The declaration has already been declared. Folks, we are involved in spiritual warfare. Theodore Elp said in his book, Winning Your War Against Satan, there's a war going on and you, Christian, are in it. The scriptures are very clear. Satan and his host are locked in combat with the kingdom of righteousness. Jesus has already been declared the victor, but Satan has not yet conceded defeat. And that's where you get involved. He's out to trip you up, to devour you. Paul Powell, former pastor of Green Acres Church in, in Tyler, in his book, The Great Deceiver, Seeing Satan for What He Is, says it is a great mistake to think that in the happy hour of our conversion, all trouble and strife cease. In reality, that hour marks the beginning of a lifelong warfare, not a war for salvation to be sure, but a war in Christian service. So we are involved in spiritual warfare, folks, and it comes to us many times in the form of a temptation. And so that's what we want to look at today as we think about how we can accept this challenge of facing our temptations and being victorious. There are five things that are printed out for you on your outline that will assist you to keep up with the rest of the message as we work our way through this, how we can overcome the devil and meet the challenge that he presents to us. The first thing that we need to keep in mind is that we need to be realistic. We need to be realistic. 
Notice in verse 13, if you had, it says, let no one say when he is tempted. Notice the word when. It's not a matter of if. There's no question about this. It's when you are tempted. So the reality of, of it is uh, we're going to be tempted whether we want to or not. Whether we're willing to or not, the devil is out to destroy us and he begins by placing a temptation in front of us. Other translations says, do not be misled about this. Don't misunderstand this. Don't make a mistake about this. We are at war and you will be and are being tempted by the, temp by the devil. Temptation is a fact of life. Every day you and I are faced with temptations. There was a man that I read about who worked for another individual who was a very cruel boss. He was always tormenting this man. His boss was not a Christian, but this young man was. The Christian was not an educated man, but he loved the Lord. He was always telling his boss that the devil was dogging his footsteps and that he was having difficulty with temptation. So one day they were talking about it while they were out duck hunting. The boss said to the man, Sam, you claim to be a Christian, and yet you're always talking about having to wrestle with temptation and how the devil is always after you. Well, I'm not a Christian, and the devil, devil never bothers me. How do you explain that? Well, this young man said, well, boss, suppose we shot two ducks. One of them falls into the water dead, and the other is still flopping around in the water. Which one are you going to go after first? Well, he said, of course, the one that's still flopping around in the water. That's right, boss. The devil knows that you're a dead duck. <laughs> the devil doesn't have to worry about you. He's already got you. You belong to him. You're dead. If the devil is after you, it's a sign of life, a sign of life. So in a way, we ought to be thankful for our temptations because if it weren't for that, we wouldn't be alive in the Lord. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as also is common to man. Being common to man is an expression that says every single person in the world who is a believer is faced with temptation. There are no exceptions to this. Someone has said that God has only one son without sin, but he has no son without temptation. Even our Lord was tempted, but he was able to overcome the devil by the use of the scriptures. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our infirmities and our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and yet without sin. The late Roman Catholic uh, priest of Fulton J. Sheen I had a television program. I remember uh, when I was a teenager or about 12 years old, we had our first television. And, and uh, for some reason, my dad loved it. Fulton J. Sheen was one of the first ministers or preachers or priests who, who had a television program. And my dad, we weren't Catholic. We've always been Baptist. But he enjoyed listening to Fulton J. Sheen. And um, Fulton J. Sheen said on one occasion, you are tempted not because you are evil, but because you are human. You're human, and every human is tempted. That's the reality of it. Notice the second thing, not only the reality of it, but the responsibility of it. Be responsible. 
In verse 13, he says, let, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone to commit evil. So every person is responsible for their own re response to temptation. And he says, do not err, do not be mistaken about this. You cannot pass the buck of responsibility to somebody else. Sometimes people might explain away their sins by saying, well, it's all heredity. I inherited this from my parents or my relatives in some way. And yes, in a, in a way, yes, because the Bible tells us in the Psalms when David was confessing his sin of adultery and murder to the father, he said, my mother who was a sinner, uh, was a sin who conceived me was a sinner and I'm a sinner too. In other words, it wasn't the sexual act of intercourse that was sinful. It was just that the sinful nature that she had was passed on to him. So yes, we trace all of our ancestry all the way back to Adam and Eve. We have the tendency to do that, but we can't blame Adam and Eve. We can't blame no one else but ourselves for that. Sometimes people say, well, it was my environment. I was just brought up on the wrong side of the track. I didn't have the, the blessings and the benefits and the advantages that other people had. Or it, it was the environment that I lived in and the people that I ran around with. And they were the ones that caused all of the circumstances that I had to go through in life. Or like the late Flip Wilson, the, the comedian who always said, the devil made me do it. That's, that's who's responsible for that. No, 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 you are responsible for that. We should accept the responsibility for our sins. The late Will Rogers summarized history into three great movements, the passing of the buffalo, the passing of the Indian, and the passing of the buck. So we simply, you know, the 33rd president, uh, Harry Truman, had a plaque on his desk in, his, in the Oval Office that said, the buck stops here. And it was absolutely right. As president of the United States, he was ultimately responsible for all of the decisions that were made by those who were in leadership of that day. And the buck stopped with him. He recognized that and he took the responsibility upon that. The word responsibility has the word respond. So to be responsible means that you respond. Well, to respond means to give an answer. You respond by giving an answer for what you do. So a responsible person is one who is answerable for what he's done. He is held responsible. My response is yes, I am the guilty one. When Nathan the prophet approached David about the sin of adultery and murder that he had committed, Nathan pointed his finger right in the face and heart of David and said, you are responsible for what has happened. And so he took the responsibility of it, took the responsibility of it. So we are responsible for that. We cannot pass the buck in responsibility. Sin is an inside job. I am guilty for my own sin. You are guilty for yours as well. And we need to recognize that. We need to be realistic. We need to be responsible. The third thing is we need to be ready, ready for temptation because it will come at any moment. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one. Look down at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So he's saying, don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes, to use an East Texas expression, to think that you're really not guilty for this. 
You need to be realistic. You need to be responsible. You need to be ready. Every morning when you wake up, you immediately find yourself in spiritual warfare. The devil is going to attack in and every way that he possibly can. Temptation is personal. It is an individual matter within each one of us. Now, the Bible warns us over and over again. Peter says in his epistle, be on the alert. Always be on your guard. That, that's the picture of a soldier who's walking through uh, enemy territory. He has to walk circumspectly. Uh, that, that means he's got to be alert. He's got to look around. You never know but what a sniper is there or somebody's going to ambush you. You need to be on your guard. You need to be alert at any moment. You could be attacked by the devil. So Peter says, be on the alert. Jesus said to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane, keep watching and keep praying. The apostle Paul says in the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, take up the full armor of the Lord because you are in spiritual warfare. You prepare for battle, understanding how temptation operates. And how does it operate? James lists four steps that are listed for you on your bulletin that lead to yielding to temptation. The first step involves desire, desire. In verse 14, he says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed, how? By his own lust. You lust after something, you crave it. Now the word lust is what we refer to as an amoral word. Uh, by that I mean that by the way you use it, it's, it can be evil or it can be good. For example, the Bible says the Holy Spirit lusts after you doesn't mean that he wants to commit evil with you. Just the word would be better translated as desire. He desires you. He loves you. He cares about you. On the other hand, the word lust is used in reference to something evil. When you lust after another person to have a sexual relationship with them or whatever. Or lust after one, someone because of their wealth. You wish you had it and all that kind of. So the word lust can be used in either way depending on the context and what it's meant here. And here he is saying that you, you lust, you desire, you want to do the evil thing that you are being tempted to do. Evil desires lead to evil action, and evil action leads to death. It's taking a normal desire and letting it run rampant out of control. But it starts with desire. Go back with me to the third, in your mind, to the third chapter of Genesis. And, and here are Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord said, do not eat of this fruit. The day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. The devil comes disguised as a serpent, tempting them. And the scripture says that Eve looked at the fruit of the tree and desired. It was good to the look. She looked at it. She lusted for it. She desired it. She wanted it. And when she took it, she disobeyed God and brought sin into the world. And it all began with a look, all began with a desire. All temptations begin that way. It starts with a desire, wanting something of which you are forbidden to take. The second step, of course, is deception, deception. In verse 14, James says that this temptation uh, drags you away because you are enticed by it. The word dragged away could also be translated carried away. The idea is uh, laying a trap. I'm, I'm not a hunter. I've never done a lot of hunting at all, but I read about it and see about it. And, and maybe you are aware that sometimes a hunter may set a steel trap. And that steel trap, uh, if an animal steps on it, slams shut and catches. Uh, 
that individual, and, and, and you've got, got the animal that you're hunting. And uh, the only way that you can get that animal out of that steel trap is to know how to release the, the bar that holds it closed, put your foot or hand on it carefully and pry it open and release the, uh, release the animal. Well, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus, in essence, uh, was a steel trap for Satan. And he closed the, the trap. And he is the one who sets us free. He's the one who defeats the devil. But the devil deceives us. Just as he did Eve in the Garden of Eden, he began to plant seeds of doubt in Eve's mind saying, Oh, God knows that you're not going to die when, when you eat of that tree, of that fruit. He knows it. For you to do that, you're going to become like he is, and he doesn't want you to do that. And so she looked at it, and she fell for the lie that he told, and he deceived her. And the Bible talks about that in the New Testament, where the devil deceived her, and she did sin. So temptation always looks better than it really is. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle that fits every single one of them. No man ever found the pleasure of sin that was equal to the picture of sin. Sin masquerades, appealing to us that this is going to be great. The third step is in disobedience. In verse 15, he says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And so there is this dis disobedience uh, the word conceived, it says after desire has conceived. The word conceived, of course, means to begin life, to form or to develop in the mind. And, of course, that leads to disobedience. I want you to quickly turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, the 1 Samuel chapter 15. In the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, you have a record of King Saul's disobedience to the Lord, where the Lord told him when he was to go out and to attack uh, the Amalekites, uh, that they were to destroy every single one of them. But, but uh, Saul disobeyed. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 15 at verse 3. In 1 Samuel 15, 3, the Lord said to, uh, to, to Saul, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare them. But put to death both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Skip down to verse 9. 1 Samuel verse, chapter 15 verse 9. But, but, there you go. But Saul and the people spared Agad and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, they did utterly destroy. Verse 10 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel and saying, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Skip down to verse, eight, uh, verse 18, 1 Samuel 15, 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Samuel said, the, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission, but it was the people here again. He's passing the buck. Verse 21, the people took some of the spoil, 
But in verse 22, Samuel said, As the Lord has much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. The Lord said, I'd rather have an obedient spirit from you than the largest contribution, financially or whatever else it could be, be given to me. Obeying him is far greater value to him than anything else. And Adam and Eve both disobeyed the Lord by going against his commandment. And it cost them, of course, being cast out of the Garden of Eden. The final step, of course, is death. You have desire, deception, disobedience, and then you have death. Verse 15 says, and sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. Just like a child, nine months of development in the mother's womb, but the child is born. Here he's saying sin has been conceived. It's doing its dirty work. And boy, when it comes fulfilled, it's full grown. It gives birth. And you know what it is? It's death. That's what it is. The one who overcomes will receive the crown of life, James tells us in the 12th verse. The one who yields will receive death. The wages of sin is death. Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, it shall die. Sometimes when people die, those who are filling out the records will say, well, they may have died, the, the, the death certificate said died of a heart attack, died of cancer, died of the results of automobile accident or some other whatever it is. Physically and medically, yes, that is the explanation for it. Spiritually and theologically, you die because you have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. We die because of sin. We die because we yielded to temptation and sinned. And when sin is full grown, it results in death. The soul that sins, it will die. Number four, be refocused. Be refocused. Verse 17 says, it seems like almost out of place for him to talk about sin and death and all of these things. And now all of a sudden in verse 17, he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So if temptation begins with the inner thoughts, change your thoughts. Change what you, you dwell on. You know, it, it, uh, whatever gets your attention gets you. When temptation comes, we'll drop the receiver. You know, remember what Joseph did when he was tempted and, and try, the, the wife of Potiphar uh, tried to seduce him? Uh, he, he got away from her. He ran. He jumped out the window. Of course, she grabbed hold of his coat as he left but, and eventually falsely accused him of trying to seduce her. But he was getting away from her. That's what you do. Sometimes the best way to, to handle temptation is a good pair of Nike tennis shoes. Just run. Don't hang around it. Don't keep dwelling on it. Don't keep looking at it. Get out of there. Run. And you'll, because, uh, take alcohol, for example. Well, alcohol, when it's, when it's used properly, in, in the right way, it's, it's an okay thing. You, if you go to the doctor and he has to give you a shot, he doesn't have the courage to give it to you. His nurse comes in and does it. <laughs> and, he, and she takes a... a, a, a a ball of cotton and she dips it in alcohol and puts it on your arm or some other appropriate place <laughs> and gives you a shot. Now, why does she use that alcohol? Because alcohol kills any germs that might be there. And so alcohol, if you use it properly for what it's intended to be, can be a good thing. It's when you take it, take something good 
and you pervert it and use it for in a way other than the way God intended it to be, then it becomes a sin. When you make an alcoholic beverage out of that, uh, then you say, well, I can handle one drink. Yeah, you, you may can. But, you know, every alcoholic started out thinking that. I can handle one drink. And after a while, it's a second drink. Then it's the first bottle. And then the second bottle. And before you know it, you're an alcoholic. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. I've, I've never taken a drink of wine or alcohol, but, but from what it says here, it, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's red, it's bubbly, it's sparkly. Those who drink it, hey, it's good. But listen to what verse 32 says. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Viper. Notice those three words, at the last. Or oh, if only those three words could be said at the beginning. If you do this at the end, it's going to ruin your life. At the last, it's going to sting like a viper. It's going to bite like a serpent. And so there are many who do that. Same thing is true with sex. An example is in Proverbs chapter 5 about the immoral person the person who is tempted to commit adultery with another individual. In Proverbs 5, 3, it says, For the lips of an adulteress, a woman, drip honey and is smoother than the oil in her speech. Oh, she's so good at, at telling what a handsome man you are. And you're, you're poor. Your wife has neglected you and you, you deserve this. And on and on. She's just dripping all over with honey. But verse 4, But in the end... She is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps take hold of Sheol. Sheol is another term for the realm of the dead. Oh, at the beginning, it looks great. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's enjoyable. But then what if you get AIDS? What if you get some kind of venereal disease? And you come down with that and it affects you for the rest of your life. In addition to the emotional, mental, and spiritual anguish that you're dealing with when you've committed adultery or have had sex before marriage with somebody else that you have no intention of marrying. Oh, it looks great. You know, the devil is no fool. You look at the commercials on TV. Uh, you only go around life once, get all the gusto you can. Because in the end, they don't finish it. In the end, it's going to hurt. And it's going to spell death for you. Well, it's gone. Number five, be reborn. Verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we will be kind of a first fruits among his creatures. He's talking about being born again. He said the first way to get all of this on top of all of this and, and conquer all of this, begin with a new birth. That's what we all started with. How do you get new life? You get it through a new birth experience. In verse 18, he says that God chose to give us birth through his truth. Jesus said, if you commit sin, you become a slave to sin. But if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So what is the first step toward victory over temptation? It's salvation. It starts with salvation, the reception of a new life that only Christ can give to you. Someone has rightly said, and I agree with it wholeheartedly, if you would master temptation, you must first let Christ master you. Who's your master? Who's controlling you? You're, somebody or something controls you. 
Either the devil controls you or God does. <coughs> so who's your master? To whom do you give allegiance? Do you give it to the devil? Do you yield to the temptation? Or do you give it to Christ? It begins with Christ. It begins with salvation. If you will allow Christ to master you, there is no temptation that you are faced with that you cannot conquer. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. Every temptation has a way of escape. We've all heard the familiar song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. It's the story of a boy coming home from prison. He's gotten off course and how wonderful if his loved ones would welcome him back. He told them in a letter that he wrote that he would be returning on a certain day. And uh, if he would be welcomed back, they were to tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree if he was welcomed. If not, then he wouldn't get off the bus and he would go on his way and start life somewhere else. If the ribbon was there, fine. If not, I'll get a start somewhere else. And when he got home, according to the song, a hundred yellow ribbons were found wrapped around the old oak tree. And so it is with us. We have wandered off course, but we're coming home to the land of beginning again. And we can overcome. God has tied a ribbon around Calvary's tree to say, I forgive you. The ribbon, however, is not yellow. It is red, stained with the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary when he was dying for you and for me. You can be welcomed back if you'll come. May we bow together, please. Father God, you're so wonderful and gracious and kind and understanding, knowing that as humans, we are tempted every single day. We are involved in spiritual warfare but we are more than conquerors through him who is in us than he who is in the world. And we thank you for the victory that's ours. We know that we are, of course, uh, have won the victory, but the battle still rages on a daily basis. But we can even be victorious as we face each temptation each day, knowing that in Christ we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So bless this time of invitation as Chris leads us, Lord Jesus. We pray that you'll speak to our hearts and minds and should there be one here today who has never discovered the new life that is in Christ to give them Holy Spirit the awareness of the need for them to repent of sin and to trust Christ as Lord and Savior if there are others struggling and dealing within the prophecy of their, their own hearts and minds whether they come forward or not Lord inside of their hearts you and minds you you know what they're thinking you know what they're deciding we know that you will be honored by what they do in Jesus name Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And as Chris leaves us, you come if God leads you. Amen.